Let's pray. Please help us, O Lord, to hear your word rightly and for me to speak your word rightly and for us to come reverently to you, not to uh, tell you what to say to us, but to listen to what you have decided you are saying to your people and to us here. Amen. Amen. Christianity has a wonderful message, but is it this? Is this the message of Christianity? Because God is a God of love. He thinks you're wonderful and just wants you to realize it. I think churches can give the impression that that's what the Christian message is, to say you're very all wonderful people. God loves you, and the problem is you just don't realize how much he loves you. That's not the Christian message. The Christian message says, because God is a God of love, he sent his son to die for obnoxious, foul sinners like us who totally deserve his judgment. God does not say we're all wonderful people. He says we're sinners. And we're not in need of appreciation, but mercy. Because God is a God of judgment. In other words, his love does not neutralize his moral outrage at our sin and mean that it, it never happened. Or that he, he, he switches that off. God saves us in a way that gives full weight to our sin's total unacceptability. And I think that's what this chapter and these chapters are about. It's about the activity of God as judge. So as we look at chapter 5, I'm going to just say three things. Number one, the reasonableness of judgment. Two, the specifics of judgment. And three, the future under judgment. And for those of you who are interested in the way your Bible works out, if you look at verses 15 and 16, which says, so man will be brought low and mankind humbled and the eyes of the arrogant humbled. Well, that matches chapter 2, verse 11, where it said the eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So there's a a carryover from chapter 2. And verse in chapter 5, verse 25, yet for all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is still upraised, carries on over into chapter 9, verse 12. For all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is still upraised. And chapter 9, verse 17. For all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is still upraised. And chapter 9, verse 21. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is still upraised. And chapter 10, verse 4. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is still upraised. So there's a carryover from, of that theme of the remaining anger that is not um, quenched by anything that has yet happened. There is more anger to come. It's a, it, that's what it, it keeps on saying. It's rather a threatening and sober thing to say. And in between those chapters, we've got some 
chapters of people encountering God. Chapter 6 is Isaiah encountering God and chapter 7 is King Ahaz encountering God. So you get a human dimension to how this works out when the rubber hits the road in actual human life. But the theme is carrying on through these chapters. The chapters about Isaiah and Ahaz are wrapped around with the ongoing, non-finished judgment and wrath from the Lord. So let's then look at the reasonableness of judgment. The chapter begins, chapter 5 begins, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. So we come to this subject of judgment asking, is this really a good thing about God? Because in human beings, often anger is an unworthy thing. People get impatient and have bad temper. And you, you say, I, I don't think God could possibly like that. It's such an ugly characteristic in a human being. Hastiness, being out of control. Well, is that what it's like with God? And the answer is that God is angry, but it's not impatient, bad temper, titchiness, uncontrolledness. In fact, it's very controlled. And in this chapter, we see that he only judges after everything else has been tried. It comes as a picture of a vineyard. And the thing about vineyards is that you want grapes on them. And he tells us about the vineyard. He, uh, verse 2, he dug it up, he, he put it on a fertile hillside, he dug it up, cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines, built a watchtower in it, cut out a wine press as well, and he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Okay, that's an interesting story. And then he goes on to say, well, actually, it's a story about you guys, speaking to the original hearers. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I've done for it when I looked for good grapes? Why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall. It'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. It's uh, one of these sort of parables where you get taken along with it until you realize it's about you. Well, that's the vineyard is the house of Israel, the house of Judah. It's it's that city. And God says, this, this is the way this picture this parable works he says look at the effort I've put in verse 2 in this parable the owner dug it up and cleared it of stones that's effort isn't it to do that put a lot of time and trouble into clearing the ground 
He began it well. He planted it with the choicest of vines. And if Israel were to look back in her history, she could say, Abraham is the father of the nation. He was a man of faith called the friend of God. How can you have a, a better beginning than that, could you? Or if you think of the history of them as a nation, who was their leader? Moses, the humblest man on earth, a man who spoke to God face and face. The beginnings were, fault, uh, you know, you couldn't fault the beginning. And God says, in this vineyard, I gave it strong protection. I built a watchtower in it, verse 2. And God did indeed protect his people in many, many ways, many, many ways down through their history. And he said, I have been looking for good fruit. I looked for a crop of good grapes. There's some good grapes. But, says God, what I actually got was bad fruit. And I looked up the original. Bad fruit is just one word. And the, um, the connection of it is with a bad smell. Stinky, stinky fruit. Remember when I was a little boy uh, in Bridge North, there was a walk next to the hospital in which I was born and there were damson trees that hung over the path. I don't know whether, I think there were damson trees. The, the damsons dropped onto the path, got squashed, and you would be find yourself walking through this of sort of smelly, uh, decayed um, fruit. And that's, the, that's what comes to my mind of bad fruit. So I've got some smelly, stinky fruit that's got stuck on people's shoes uh, there. And he says, for example, end of verse 7, he looked for, what sort of fruit is he looking for? Justice. Hebrew word, uh, sorry, Hebrew word mishpat, but he found bloodshed. Hebrew word mizpah. It's a pun, isn't it? I looked for mishpat, I found mizpah. I looked for order justice and I found violence bloodshed and then there's a second one I looked for righteousness but heard cries of distress righteousness sedekah cries of distress sa'akah I looked for sedekah I found sa'akah I looked for righteousness but I found people crying out because they were being mugged Is it not reasonable for a farmer to expect fruit? Isn't what we're being told here that it, there is, it is entirely reasonable? What God, the, the way God is approaching this is entirely reasonable. Fruitfulness, you go right back to the beginning, Genesis 1 verse 28. God, when God made the human race, he said, Be fruitful and multiply. He, he made human beings to be fruitful in various senses, but I think fruitful is a right thing to do. And for his own people that he took and protected and planted in this land, 
there's a particular expectation that they should be fruitful. That's what he's saying. I've, I looked, I gave you, I looked after you so carefully. I gave you these privileges. And what's unreasonable about expecting a response from this? Some sort of gratitude, some sort of appreciation, some sort of um, willingness to please me, some sort of understanding of the relationship that we're in. Of course, it's, it's true generally about being human that God has given us many privileges just by being human. We don't have to be any particular ethnicity. God has given us all sorts of privileges. He's our maker. And isn't it reasonable for him to expect that we should be thankful, that we should give him glory because he's bigger and greater than, than we are? And the, uh, the, the text says, well, do you, what do you think? Uh, word to judge, it says in verse 3, now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What do you think? What, what, what makes sense? What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? What, what, what could I possibly have done more for my vineyard? I've been so generous. I've given so much. And he gives us, we're told in Acts 17, he gives everybody life and breath and everything else. And we are therefore, aren't we, obligated to him as our creator. Isn't, he, isn't it fair and right and just normal for, him, for us to be grateful to him and want to please him? And he asked this question, why, verse 4, when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Why? And it's a good question. Why? And there's actually something completely inexplicable about sin. Why do we sin? Now, of course, there's no shortage of people who say, oh, well, there is an explanation. I sin because of my upbringing. I sin because of my genes. I sin because of the pressures of society on me. And there's some truth in those things. But until we realize that sin is not something we can excuse ourselves from because of our genes, because of my upbringing because of the pressures on me, but to say, I sinned, and that's wrong, and that's my fault, and I've got no explanation and no excuse. And when God says, why the bad grapes? We say, there's no, I, I can't think of a good reason, it's just me, it's my fault. That's what sin is like. It's Without excuse, it's just wrong. And the tax collector had it right when he said, God be merciful to me. And he didn't say, God be merciful to me, it's a problem with my social worker. Or God be merciful to me, it's a problem with my society. He just says, God be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. 
It's a fundamental truth which we have to take on board if we're to get anywhere right with the God of the Bible. Let's look now at the specifics. That was the, the, the reasonableness of judgment. Let's look now at the specifics of judgment because going on into the next bit of the chapter, you will have noticed, and you can count them if you like, there are six woes. And I um, think there are two long woes and four short woes or something like that. I didn't go into it as deeply as that. But let's take those woes as being specific grapes, specific stinky grapes, and let's go through those six specific of judgment. The first woe, or the first bad grape, I think we could call materialistic greed. Woe to you who add, this is verse 8, house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed, only an ephah of grain. And the woe here is against the materialistic greed who are these people who are not just um, putting on a conservatory on the back of the house, but they're sort of grabbing land from people around them. The social system in Israel was meant to produce equality so that people couldn't get rich at the expense of the poor. It was meant to keep things level. But this seems to have been disregarded by these people who have the power just to grab land, to take away the land which other people had a right to and add house to house and join field to field. And he says to them, you will be desperately disappointed. Your great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupant, and your vineyard will produce hardly, I don't know what a bath of wine is, but presumably a very disappointing outcome of wine. New Testament would agree with that. that uh, It wouldn't say that it's wrong to be wealthy, but it does say don't put your hope in uncertain riches. Don't depend on your wealth as if that's your God. Don't put your trust in your wealth because it's uncertain. The second woe, verse 11, I think we could describe as escapist pleasure-seeking. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. These people live constantly under the intoxication of alcohol, or if we were nowadays, we'd say substances, which is a euphemism, isn't it? Uh, Other things that give you a high, the intoxication of alcohol and the intoxication of music, because, of course, music's intoxicating too. Verse 12, they have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine. They escape, they're seeking to escape from real life, the life in a universe ruled by a holy God and all they are concerned about is 
escaping into more wine, more substances, and this um, music scene. The Bible doesn't say alcohol is wrong in itself. The Bible doesn't say music's wrong in itself. But it does say that escaping into those things so that fills your whole world is, as it says in verse 12, having no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. You've built a little world which is so full of itself that it, it excludes God, and he said that is just not on. They don't think about the work of his hands. There's no room in this world of alcohol and music to think about well for them it would have been the exodus that God redeemed them from Egypt in our world now we can say there's no room for remembering the cross of Jesus Christ they have no respect for his deeds and the work of his hands and for lack of understanding verse 13 people will go into exile because they haven't thought about this because their worldview of thinking and therefore acting and choosing, has squeezed God out and filled up the space with something else. It mentions the grave, verse 14, therefore the grave enlarges its appetite. We'll come back to that in a moment. No seriousness about God in this life means no security from God in the life to come. And then we have a little extra bit here where it says in verse 15, so man will be brought low and mankind humbled and the eyes of the arrogant humbled, but the Lord Almighty will be exalted in his justice and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. And as it seems to be two sides of the same coin, as human arrogance is put down, God exalts himself in his justice, that's his mishpat, and uh, he shows himself holy in his righteousness, that's that word, sedekah, again. So as human beings are brought low, God is exalted and seen to be great. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing for God to be glorified. It's a tough way for that to happen but it's a good thing for God to be glorified and he's glorified here in the humbling of human society and in the exalting of his own justice and holiness moving on in the woes we got to verse 18 woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as as with cart ropes. I think this is a picture of people putting huge effort into freight. You know, like they didn't have trains, didn't have lorries in those days. If you wanted to move a load of bricks or a load of timber, you'd tie it all up with ropes and you'd just pull. And he says, this is what they seem to be doing with sin. They're almost making an industry out of sin and deceit. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. They're just putting huge effort into this transportation of sin in various forms. And 
they're not short of sarcasm. Verse 19, let, to those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Come on, God. Let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come. So we'll know it. That's sarcasm. They're taunting God. They're saying, we don't see you do very much. Come on then, God. Come on, do, do a few tricks for us. Yeah, we're very keen on that. It's extremely irreverent, isn't it, to speak to God that way. It's sarcastic, taunting, defiance of the Holy One. Verse 19, let the plan of the Holy One. How they dare call upon the Holy One in his power and majesty as if to say, come on God, do some tricks for us. Woe number four, a reversal of what God and conscience say is right. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They take these opposites and turn them round. We find this reversal, uh, it's it's not a new thing, it's happening now. The reversals of what is evil is said to be good. The things that are said to uh, that, that uh, are actually darkness are said to be light. You know, we use all sorts of modern words for that: being progressive, being liberal, whatever. Uh, but things that in society in the past would have been seen wrong but tolerated uh, now become celebrated. And you see the whole thing's gone completely upside down. And God says, this is bad fruit. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Fifth woe in verse 21, this is a short woe. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Sort of self-defining arrogance without wishing to be particularly unfair to the BBC, there are instances, aren't there, on telly of people who are clearly have no time for Christian faith and are put on as wise people, giving us wisdom. And like it says in Romans, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And these extremely clever people come out with such stupid things that's the way it is they're wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight Calvin when he talks about the role of theology says that what this does is to give us a knowledge of ourselves and a knowledge of God when we the two go together when we know how great God is we realize how small we are When we know how holy God is, we realize how sinful we are. When we know how infinite God is, we realize how limited we are. We don't define ourselves by ourselves. We understand ourselves in the presence of God, in the sight of God. And that's the right way to understand ourselves, not being wise in our own sight. And as a practical piece of advice, Paul says to Christians in the Roman church, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But think of yourself with sober judgment 
in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. He says, think of yourself rightly as somebody who has received grace from God and don't be wise in your own eyes. Sixth woe is in verse 24. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. These are experts in evil. Paul says to the Corinthian church, in understanding be grown up, in, what does he say, in understanding be men, I'd have to paraphrase it, in evil be children. You, you can be naive, you don't have to know all the details of all the evil that people can do. You don't have to be an expert in that. Be an expert in understanding the things of God, in understanding be men. These people are experts in, well, verse 22, drinking. They're champions at mixing drinks. And he then couples it with the way this works out in terms of justice. You acquit, he says, the guilty for a bribe. It's corruption, isn't it? This is called corruption. So his word is to justify the guilty for a bribe. That's what a corrupt judge judge does. He says to the guilty person, let you off, you're fine, no problem. And he does it because somebody has given him some money which he puts in his back pocket. And God says, woe to you who do that. To treat the guilty as if righteous. And then the other side of the coin, who deny justice to the innocent, uh, to turn aside the righteousness of the righteous. So have somebody before you who is clearly righteous and has a plea or a cause or a, a complaint to be looked at and you just turn that aside, kick it into the long grass is what you'd say nowadays. It says, woe to you if you do that. Those are the six woes. And let me add a seventh example of bad fruit. And this is hundreds of years later, same city. Jesus, on Palm Sunday, entered the city. And you remember, right at the beginning, he sort of acts this out. He goes to a tree with, and looks for fruit on it. It's not the season for figs. It's full of leaves, but he still gives it a chance and says, even though I'm pretty sure there's no fruit here, I'm going to have a look. And there is no fruit. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the tree withers and dies. It's sort of a parable of what Jesus does as the last judgment for this city to come along and look for fruit. He looked very hard. He looked for the things that God has itemized. He looked for the knowledge of God. He looked for reverence, understanding, respect for God and love for one another. And what he found was irreverence, pride, greed, greed for money, greed for spiritual power. Because the Pharisees, you remember, as I think Pilate rightly perceived, it was out of envy that they crucified Jesus. 
Jesus came and looked for fruit. And there's a text which says, judgment must begin at. And we're going to fill that in. And you might say, judgment will begin with the, well, what does it say? Judgments must begin at the house of God. So rather than us looking outside and saying in a rather pharisaical way, I thank God that we're okay, to say, we too come under this for our thoughts and words and deeds and our response is God be merciful to me a sinner so let's come to the third thing about the future under judgment so where does this where does this chapter lead us on to Well, it leads us on to chapter 6, but we're not going to chapter 6 just yet. What does the chapter itself say about the future? Well, it says hard things. Verse 5, it says, about this vineyard, I'm going to take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. So what he says about this vineyard is the removal of protection, the removal of privilege for this vineyard, and the garden will become a desert, and the occupants... Well, what does it say about the occupants? Mm. It doesn't say anything about the occupants in there, but verse 13 and 14 says, my people will go into exile. The grave enlarges its appetite. You say that the occupants of this vineyard will be removed either to a distant place or to the grave, and that's a pretty distant place. So let's put the occupants being moved out. When Jesus says the same sort of thing in his day, he actually tells this as a story about tenants in the vineyard and he comes to the end of it and he says a similar thing what do you think will happen what do you judge about this and the answer is he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others and his listeners are aghast because what he's saying is that the privileges that the Jewish nation had of being the nation under the protection of God that that will Uh, those privileges will be removed from them and given to others. And they say, dirty Gentiles coming into our temple, uh, filthy, rubbish, foreigners partaking in our sacrifices. May this never be. You can get a sense of their um, horror at this thought. But of course, if you're one of the others, it's good news, isn't it? We could go into the vineyard. That would be amazing. 
So those people that come into the vineyard, it's good news. And of course it is good news because through that breaking down of the barriers, us, because we're the filthy Gentiles, can come into the things of the holy God of Israel. Uh, it, it, it's, it's sad for them, but it, what, uh, what, a, what a favor to us. We come in. And of course we should add to this, this remarkable saying of Jesus knowing full well all this history of vineyard stuff. And, and Jesus just cuts right to the heart of it, and he says, do you know that the vineyard thing, it isn't about ethnicity. I mean, God favored the men of Judah and the, the people in Jerusalem. He favored them, but he took it away from them because the heart of the matter is this, that the true vine, says Jesus, is me. And the secret of fruitfulness is not being Jewish or any other ethnic thing. The secret of fruitfulness is belonging to Jesus. Isn't that a classic thing for Jesus to say? He just steps right into this whole stream of history and and, and prophecy and says, let's cut to the chase, I'm the vine. If you belong to me, you produce fruit. If you abide in me, you produce fruit. He has, has the stern bits as well, doesn't he? He says, if there's no fruit, you get cut off. If you produce stinky fruit, you get cut off. But there is a secret here of fruitfulness, that I am the true vine. Any, if you belong to me, if you abide in me, you'll produce fruit. So what, is, what else is God promising? Well, in verse 15 and 16, he's promising that he will be exalted the Lord's triumphant exaltation. The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. The holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, when God shows his judgment, he hasn't flopped. It's not a failure for God to show justice. It is his triumph. He says human beings will be ruined, but he will be exalted. If God were to enter into judgment now and say there's, there's a, just freeze history where it is now and if God were to take the day of judgment now it would be his glory. He's exalted in judgment. But he's, he does give something some more specific to this particular situation. In verse 17 He's saying that uh, there will be human ruin and a a depopulation of that particular area. And he prophesies a very specific invader because God used the nations to bring about his judgment. They were like instruments in his hand. And this is a reference to Assyria. He will lift up a banner, verse 26, for the distant nations he whistles for those at the end of the earth. I can't do a whistle like a sheepdog. Anybody could do that? Like that, where you whistle for the sheepdog to come. Um, that was your opportunity. Don't do it again now. But, um, but God just sort of whistles for the Assyrian. Right, time to come in. Uh, the time of waiting's passed. The day of grace has gone. And the Assyrian is whistled for to come in. And he's cruel. 
They come swiftly and speedily. None of them grows tired or stumbles. No one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sangled thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are strung. The horses' hooves are like flint. Their chariots like a whirlwind. Their roar like that of the lion. They growl as they seize their prey to carry it off with no one to rescue. It's an appalling picture. God says, I've been so reasonable, so patient, Hundreds and hundreds of years of patience, time and time again. My patience is vast, but it is not infinite. I do care about justice, and the day is coming. The Lord has this controlling signal, and we end the chapter with verse 30, darkness and distress, even the light will be darkened by the clouds. And that's where we end the chapter Darkness, gloom, distress, clouds, there they are. It's a horrible picture. It ends up hopeless. Now, as we go on into the future chapters, there will be hope. But at this particular point, there's nothing of hope. It says there is a hopelessness here. Later on, he'll talk about chopping down all the trees, but a stump will shoot up. And later on, he'll talk about the barrenness of the daughter of Jerusalem, but a child will be born. He will say all those things, but he doesn't say it here. And he's going to talk about, in chapter 9, verse 2, to those who sat in darkness, a great light has dawned, to those who living in the land of the shadow of death have seen a great light. He's going to say that, but he doesn't say it here. And the reason, I think there's a reason for that, that before we can appreciate how wonderful the light is and the hope is, we have to first grasp that without it, we are helpless and hopeless. Jesus put it this way, and I think he's putting the same thing. He says, unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, When he talks about little children, he's not saying, I want you to be as charming as little children. And he's not saying, I want you to be um, as uh, cute as little children. He's saying, I want you to realize you're as helpless as little children. Because that's the thing about little children, isn't it? Newborns. In particular, unless somebody picks them up, they can't do a thing. Unless somebody feeds them, they can't do a thing. Unless somebody keeps them warm, they're totally vulnerable. That's what Jesus is getting at. Unless you realize your total helplessness, your total vulnerability that you need to be picked up by someone else, you need to be held by someone else, you need to be nurtured by someone else. Unless you get that, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to ask you, do you get that? Is that how you think about your own spiritual life? Unless the Lord had lifted me, unless the Lord forgave me, I would be completely sunk How helpless and hopeless we sinners had been if he never had loved us till cleansed from our sin. But to him be the glory, because he he lifted me.
Unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Or to put it in the way that that tax collector so rightly said, this is where we come down to. God be merciful to me, a sinner. We're going to sing number 705.